Welcome to Education Suspended, a podcast focused on exploring, engaging, and dialoguing with those in education who are passionate about changing the status quo and evolving the archaic system we have inherited. Education Suspended is a production of Intricate Roots Educational Consulting Services. Our editor and production manager is Katie Kunin. Our producer is Jamie Higa, and our music is provided by Poets Row. Hello, everybody. Welcome to episode number 28 of Education Suspended. And believe it or not, this is our final episode of season one. Can't believe we got it this far. We have had over 7,000 listens going into this final episode. So thank you all for joining us on all of these episodes, for sharing it. And we continue to ask that you do that as we move into season two. Today in our final episode, we sit down and have an amazing conversation with Karenicia Connor. Karenicia is a PhD curriculum and instruction candidate. That's right, everybody. She passed her comprehensive exam since the last time we talked to her. So shout out to you, Karenicia. She specializes in urban education and policy reform cognate at Baylor University. This conversation could have lasted forever. We did not keep talking for eight hours, but we really wanted to. We connect with Karenicia about... Well, essentially, we jump into this notion of urban education. What does it mean? What are we actually trying to say there? She makes a really powerful statement about the psychological violence our students experience when we don't recognize their diversity and what they bring into our classrooms. And that really resonated with me. She also talks about how we should start becoming uncomfortable and acknowledge we are all on a learning curve and that it's okay to be uncomfortable. There's just so many things that I connected with. It was interesting re-listening to this and editing it. I always love that experience, but I was taking notes as I was doing it with this interview. Y'all, thank you so much for listening to our last episode of the season. Season two will start after this. And Karenicia, we can't thank you enough for um, taking us out on a high note. All right, everybody. Take care and enjoy Education Suspended with Karenicia Connor. Karenicia, welcome to Education Suspended and from joining us all the way from Waco, Waco, Texas. Yes. Thank you so much. I'm glad to be here to talk with y'all. Well, we start all of our episodes the same. And so what we'd like you to do is just obviously introduce yourself to our listeners. And then from there, if you wouldn't mind, if you feel comfortable telling us a little bit about your own educational experience, your own journey, what was it like for you as a student? And then what's the connection if any, to what you do now and the work that you're doing now. And yeah, we'll just start with that and go on. Well, my name is Karenicia Elizabeth Connor, and I'm currently a doctorate student at Baylor University in the Department of Curriculum and Instruction. I am preparing for candidacy to receive the notification that I can declare myself a doctoral candidate. And my cognate is urban education. And while that's still being sorted out in the field of education about what urban education actually means, how I got into education was actually through a very roundabout way. Um, so I grew up, I'm a military brat, barely, uh, because we came from Germany when I was about two years old and my dad came down with colon cancer in 97. So we ended up being stationed here in Kalina at Fort Hood and then my dad retiring and us staying there. And so being in a military town, the population was so diverse. You know, we have Cuban grocery stores, Filipino grocery stores. And, and so many different races come here because of the nature of this being a military town. And so that was how my schooling was comprised too, of so many different folks and people. 
but it was very much still influenced by the army and the military. So when I think about some of my high school courses, and if I wanted to substitute taking gym, I could take a home development class. Or if I wanted to develop a vocation before I graduated, I could take career and technology classes. I took cosmetology, or I could do small engine repair, phlebotomy. And so um, it wasn't until after I graduated that I realized a lot of these careers and vocations that they were preparing us for was geared towards, especially women, being vocationally mobile as military wives. So being able to travel with our, our military husbands from place to place and still be employable. And as well, the influence that the military town had on women was just that, you know, we were very much focused on getting a, a GI in some cases. And at least I can say that that was my focus. I didn't plan to, to go to college. I planned to be a military wife. And so it wasn't until my sister passed away my senior year of high school that I was like, you know, maybe I need to go and do something to kind of get out of this element that I've been forced into of, of grief and trauma. And so I applied to the University of Houston and I got there by the, the skin of my teeth. I was the 49th percentile and got in. So I packed up and I moved and it was amazing, an amazing change of context for my learning and development because as a black woman, being in such a diverse crowd of people, I never really got to learn what it meant for me to be a Black woman serving in African-American communities and serving women and men and children like myself. And so the university being in Third Ward of Houston, Texas, you know, a historically Black community that helped the desegregation of Houston, it really allowed me to figure out who am I in the scope of being a Black woman and how I plan to serve my community and those that we are serving. But I was political scientist. Science and, and Spanish was my minor. And so I did internships uh, as an aide, congressional aide uh, for a congressman there in Houston. I also worked with City Hall. And it wasn't until my senior year that I started working with children for a research project that I realized that I want, that's where the change occurred a little bit faster and more significant for me. And so I had to make this pivot of going from political science into a purely education focus. So I got into the University of Texas at Austin, the UT Urban Teachers Program, focusing again upon this idea of urban. And I want us to discuss that a little bit later about what we really mean when we say urban. However, that program was very awesome for now taking the perspectives that I learned socially as a Black woman into a very pointed educational sphere. And so that's where I, my love for teaching and education really became a formalized educational pursuit. And I taught for two years in Maynard ISD, a year in China at an American school. And then when I came back, I started working for my PhD at Baylor University. So a long story, but that's my journey through education uh, of my own education. So that's a beautiful story. I mean, we could jump into all of those experiences and we'd be here all day. We can't not ask a little bit about China and that experience. Yeah, yeah you know, I had always wanted to travel abroad and I never uh, imagined that it would be China. To be honest, China offered the best contract that would support me financially and give me some great experience. Uh, I was working at an American school. And so most of my students were Korean because the town that I lived in, Yantai in, Shen, in the province of Shandong, it was very much a, a town of industry. And so it brought people from all over the world in, but specifically from Korea. And so at this school, most of the population was Korean and we did have a small population of Chinese students that attended. And I got to teach history. So that was amazing. And the reason why I chose China is because I didn't have to go out of my wheelhouse and teach English, but I got to stick to teaching social studies. Just for our listeners that might not know, and I don't know if you even know that you and Steve have a commonality here. Steve has his master's in curriculum and instruction. What is that degree? What does that mean? You're going to have a degree or doctor in curriculum and instruction. 
How I like to explain it is I think that everyone has a a vantage point in a way that they see the world. And so that also trickles down into how we teach, how we determine what we're teaching, which is curriculum, and then the how we're teaching, which is the instruction portion. And so curriculum instruction is just putting those two together, thinking about how am I as an individual going to bring together what I find important is to teach or what I am instructed to teach with how I believe teaching should be conducted in the classroom with students. There's so many things I want to ask about. Maybe first, I know we definitely want to talk about your emphasis on decolonizing curriculum. As long as we've got curriculum on our minds, I think it's incredibly important, although I would like it better defined even for me, because people feel really threatened by those sorts of words in some places. Mm -hmm. And I know you are in a state where that has been a controversial thing very recently in the news. Yes. And yes, decolonization can be a very scary word. And it really just depends on how we're using it. From what I understand and my philosophy of teaching, decolonizing means that we have to, as a nation, step away from these ideals that there is a specific way that people understand family, that they do life and that they experience life and that we consider these ideas that it's a homogeneous idea that everyone's supposed to experience it alike and does experience it alike. And so decolonizing specifically in curriculum is understanding that not everyone experiences education alike. And so we have to realize the social, the cultural, the economic forces that students come into into schools experiencing already, but also the consequences of what we do in school having effect on how we live life and what we do in life and who we become. And so Decolonizing is making space for diverse ideas and people and experiences to be included in these conversations about the family structure. It's changing. It's not the same anymore. It's not the nuclear family that we were prioritizing education to form the format of education, prioritizing it in relation to the nuclear family structure. So what does it look like for us to change that to look like the diversity of families that we see today and make space for them in our curriculum? One of the things that really kind of drew me to you and wanting to have you on this podcast and connect is even going deeper than that. In, in this course, it sounds like that you teach at, at Baylor, right? This connection of social is- issues. The description that was that really hit home was that you don't just kind of teach this content to, to future educators. You go a, a step further and you begin to develop a sense of appreciation within these teachers of the why. Why is that so important to celebrate the differences and their educational experiences and to have a deeper understanding that they're bringing a wealth of knowledge? These kids are bringing their own stories and their own knowledge into the classroom. So can you talk about that? Can you talk about how do you, how do you, address that with teachers. Yeah, for sure. I and it kind of goes back to that notion of decolonizing this idea that there's there's a there's a psychological violence that students are experiencing at schools when we are not recognizing that America's diversity has changed greatly. You know, yes, we used to be a a heteronormative society of uh, majority white folks, but we are moving towards a more diverse society. And so some scholars say that we are actually in a culture war. So this culture war is what I think is it was inevitable that it should happen as America's diversity continued to grow. Then we would have to shift the way that we have organized our systems, organized our economy and organize our education sphere. And so our teachers need to be aware of how does race, how does social class, sexuality, gender, 
age, disability status, and a host of other uh, social, social, what we're calling in this class, social issues in education. How are our students' identities being taken into consideration in what we teach and how we teach it? Because we're moving and they're saying towards 2050, the white population will no longer be the majority of the population in this in the United States. So these culture wars were inevitable. But I, I think we have to consider how we're coming to the table to discuss the increased diversity in culture. And so that's what we're teaching our teachers to do is to come to the table of education with solutions and with strategies that help them to include those diverse identities into their instruction. For example, if you were if we were to think of and do an activity where you had paper and pen or a pencil or crayon and said, okay, well, uh, draw a scientist for me. Who would you draw? You know, more than likely and what I have seen happen in doing that activity or asking them to draw a, an astronaut, they draw for a scientist, an older uh, white guy. And then when it comes to an astronaut, they're wanting to draw this hip, possibly middle-aged or younger guy who is also white. And so in those messages, we are giving out this idea that only the only people who do this are those who look like those in the picture. And so we're wanting to include diverse identities in their achievements as American histories continue to be taught in our classrooms. What's it like for these teachers in training before they get out into, into classrooms? What's their response to this activity? What's their response to uncovering all of this with you? It's a cognitive dissonance. It's like a diversion from what they have come to know and accept as truth and realizing that they have come to know and accept this as truth. So it's one thing to accept the truth and live in it, but another thing to realize that it is problematic and, and that you didn't know that you had accepted this thought and belief. So that is the entry point that we try and recognize that there are things as teachers that we may say and do that are unintentionally harming students. And we want to be aware through cross-cultural communication, through strategies, through inclusion, that we can prevent adding onto that violence that students may feel. And when I speak about violence, I think about the psychological violence. And so when we're talking about the achievement gap and opportunity gaps, you know, it's almost always talked about in the terms of race, saying that white students are outperforming their BIPOC peers. What we're not considering is that what are our students coming to classroom having to battle with before they get there that make learning not the first priority in their lives? Because schools are becoming these places where we're integrating social services even more, it's important that our teachers and our administrators are starting to follow that reform in policy with the reform in ideology. Yeah, I would imagine your your Jamie's clapping. <laughs> I would imagine um, without maybe even recognizing how helpful it was going to be, but the first focus of your career as a young professional, which was more of that social component, that policy, mm-hmm. that that really connects with kind of the work that you're doing now. For sure, and that's that's where I'm headed. I was I was kind of uh, unhappy with my experience in in politics. Not that it was the people that I worked with because I worked with extraordinary people, but it was just, again, the rate and pace in which change happened and what you needed to do to make that happen. And so uh, I felt that getting more foot soldiers in the grassroots movement through students, through education was the way to go. And that's what we have to realize that we're doing is we are creating a movement towards the future in education. And so I'm wanting to move towards school reform policy and thinking about what's happening at our highest political spectrums are 
littering down and filtering into how we are making decisions in education. And until we recognize that, we're going to continue perpetuating the cycle of harm, psychological harm that happens when we are not considering how we are bringing diverse identities to the table and giving them room to use their voice. I just have to ask, and not to take us up topic, when I cognitively step my foot into the realm of policy, my threshold before I am ready to throw things across rooms and like just, I don't have a good threshold because I just don't understand how the system continues to function the same way when we know, you know, without a, a thought in mind, there's a better way to do education. How do you manage that? You dip your toe in this all the time. Yeah, part of my discontent with policy and, and politics was that sometimes there was an overemphasis, I felt, in the need to grease palms in order to get the resources that you need. And unfortunately, and when I say grease palms, I mean like sometimes you have to beat around the bush in areas. I feel sometimes you're not able to really kind of take that approach of we need to change this now. You know, it's again that progression of we have to slowly make this thing happen in order for resources to change hands. But I understand the necessity of that somewhat because we're in this together. It takes all of us to be in America and to make America as great as it is. All of the diversity, all of the problems and, and trauma that we have had of the past, we have to deal with that today. And we have to learn how to deal with each other in a way that says, either you're going to make space and room at this table, or I'm going to take space and take room at this table. And so sometimes the taking the space in the room can be a little hard to navigate, which sometimes that is my approach. <laughs> I'm going to take space. And the greasing hands is like, I have to request for those to make space. I still have the same points of contention with policy, but I can't ignore it. And I can't ignore its necessity in making the changes that, I, that need to happen. Just a couple of observations, but as I, I'm listening to Karenicia, I am that old white man and um, <laughs> I taught for a lot of years. And honestly, I cared about exactly what you're talking about, but sometimes we don't know how to care. And so then we become almost too careful, almost fakey careful, and still a little bit stilted in our own teaching approach because we think, oh, now what am I doing wrong? You know what I mean? How do you help bridge that? I understand change is incremental and hard, and I'm with you on all of that. How do you, you know, grease the rails a little bit to make someone of my age a little bit more comfortable with change because change mm -hmm. absolutely needs to happen. How do we do it in a way that we're not faking it or just trying to please you or anyone else? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. That's, that's good. I like that question. I think it is, I can't save myself from the uncertainty of change and having to deal with change constantly as a Black woman. I always have to think about how I'm bringing myself into a space and a place and to govern myself in a way that my identity is not threatening to others or not offensive to others in order for me to maintain success. And so that is the reality of my existence. So I cannot exactly say that there is a way that you might become comfortable with it. I don't think comfort should be a part of the equation, but more so you should get uncomfortable with the fact that we are all learning how to manage our identities and that they're not solidified and normative such that we get comfortable with feeling like we have some type of control or power in this area, but instead that we're all on a learning curve and learning to be better for our students and growing with them. And I think that is the most comfortable that we can get with it is being uncomfortable with the change that needs to happen that we need to see. I love that. Be comfortable with being uncomfortable. Yeah. 
Yeah. Welcome to my world. <laughs> Welcome to, you know, how I have to negotiate my identity in a space and think about like, well, am I going to, if I say it how I really am wanting to say it, which is in a professional tone and a professional manner that is direct and assertive, that unfortunately is not always a pleasing way to receive things from those who um, may have unintended or un subconscious bias about how a Black woman should present her, herself in a space or place. And that's the psychological violence that I'm speaking that our students are coming to school with. They're having to think about how they're navigating their experiences of people perceiving them because of their skin color, that they are associated with ideas of violence or poverty or lack of desire for education. And then if we're thinking about just like social economic issues of thinking about what's more important than education, feeding my family, making sure my family's supported, making sure that uh, everyone's needs are taken care of, making sure that I make it to school alive, may I make it home alive, making sure that I have dignity and self-respect as a person that I honor and enjoy being. That is the constant navigation and negotiation in our minds, in some of our minds, I won't say everybody, that we're thinking of when we're coming into spaces, especially in places where people don't, we're not the majority and don't look like us, but it happens everywhere. Queer students are coming up for me. Um, mm -hmm. And even a subgroup, and we won't need to jump into this, but even our neurodiverse students, yeah, their experience in the classroom doing in, in uh, social issues and education courses, we're actually giving our students a practical opportunity. We are now going out into the field and finding not only school contexts where we can observe how these identities are being shaped by curriculum instruction and school culture, but also venturing out into the community and finding community organizations that are working with these populations, interviewing them, observing the methods, being on the ground, working with these students, practicing our pedagogical skills and teaching and instruction instruction so that we can not only grow better as teachers, but become better in understanding our students as teachers. So we're giving them that opportunity to go out into the field and observe and practice and really notate how these students require specific care and have needs that we have to be aware of. And we need as well to be aware of our positionality as teachers. I, as a Black cisgendered woman, I am going to experience life a whole lot different than a Black non-gender conforming woman or, or non-gender conforming person. And so we have to give them that experience. And that's what we're working on. And that's uh, I think what is providing us inquiry into a first look of how am I experiencing myself and how will I, as a teacher, how will my identity confront or interact with my students and theirs with mine? I absolutely love that activity. What are your students finding? What are these teachers seeing? For example, I had a, one student do a project. She's like, well, you know, I'm a I'm a white woman, I'm cisgender, and I'm Christian. And that's three identities that are very important to me that are going to really influence my curriculum instruction as a teacher. And I have strong convictions about LGBTQIA folks. And so how do I plan to get rid of some of the biases that I I believe or hold about how people should live their lives? What she found was that in this area, I really have no place to govern their lives or govern who they should become, but I should be nurturing who they are and who they want to become and helping them to be their best selves and, and allow them to help me to become my best self as a teacher. Finding ways to include them in instruction and include them in what we're seeing evolve in the story of America through English, through social studies, through science, and through, I'm forgetting a subject, math. <laughs> I'm going to make a slight pivot, but I think it's a connection that I feel would be really worth talking about. All this conversation seems to me to lead to possibly your belief in project-based 
learning. As a more equitable, more inquiry-like existence for students, I think respecting students of many different backgrounds, I think we'd like to know more about that, what project-based learning and experiences you've had and why you see that as a more equitable way of approaching a lot of curriculum. Yeah. Project-based learning, um, it's near and dear to my heart. I did not learn project-based learning from the academy. I learned through baptism by fire. As I moved out from the academy into my first teaching job, it was at a school whose curriculum was 100% project-based learning, their curriculum and instruction. And so it was something I kind of had to learn on my feet, on the fly. But some people may call it problem-based learning. Uh, Definitely different scholars pull different attributes out of it and therefore call it different things. But project-based learning is based on the idea that you want to have an end product that designs something that is able to solve a problem, a real world issue. And so by creating opportunities for students to explore and develop inquiry questions into a problem or phenomenon that we are drawing their natural curiosity out and allowing that curiosity and their ideologies, positionalities to determine how they design a solution for this issue or problem. In my infancy as a project-based learning teacher, we were learning about the ancient River Valley civilizations. And so So one way to really kind of bring this to life in a project was we were going to make 3D maps. And so I brought dirt to class, got some water, some buckets, uh, cardboard, and they had to actually draw, outline the map, do the political boundaries, and also then take that dirt and create the landform and and recreate what it actually looked like topographically and then place flags where things were. And so it just allows students to, to learn different methods of completing assignments, doing it in a way that that really kind of gets back to this Ubuntu element of play and really just allows their creative, um, their creative characteristics to come out in a way that's very diverse. Part of it is presenting these projects that they do and in, in doing it formally for oral communication grade and then doing a written portion for a written communication grade. How did you include knowledge and thinking into your creativity that you put into this project? Part of that was also dressing professionally to present these things or developing a style of dress that represents what you're talking about. So I had a student who forgot to come dressed in his professional attire. So he went to this bathroom and he wrapped himself in toilet paper and came back as an Egyptian mother. And as a teacher, I couldn't hate on him. I was here for it. I loved it. Like, that's great thinking. That's thinking on your feet. You get credit from me, my friend. (laughs) There's there's like a a full circle. The strategies that you're new as a professor and an instructor of teachers are using with, with those adults. You're having the teachers do the same thing with their kids, right? So in so many ways, you're modeling of like this really dynamic learning environment from a cultural perspective, Right. I'm modeling that, but also showing them, you know, diverse scholars and diverse ways that people are are thinking about how they're serving LGBTQIA students, how they're serving students with diverse neurocognitive needs, how they're serving students of different religions or different language abilities. And so it's important that I let them know that I have a specific ideology and bias towards what I believe to be a solvent towards these issues in, in education. And it's very important for themselves that they identify their positions and develop and attach to something that brings that out in a very unique and strong way, such that you are performing at a high as a high quality teacher. 
And I'm even using it as I'm teaching my peers, for example. And I think it's a great way for us to have difficult conversations without getting our egos involved. Last week in one of my classes uh, at where I'm a student, there was a heated discussion taking place between some other students. And so this week when I'm facilitating the lesson, I, I definitely expect for there to be more heated conversations. And I don't have a problem with heated conversations. I love them. I think sometimes conflict can be constructive to us uh, getting towards a better solution. And so sometimes when we're bringing diversity identities into context. It's not going to look all hunky-dory. Will you be my neighbor at first? But once we continue to have those conversations, build respect and rapport with one another, we can get to the will you be my neighbor portion of life. And so it's only through first experiencing that. And so with my class, you know, we're, we're thinking about urban spaces and urban ecology through, and through sociology. And we're going to be acting as urban planners, representing theories from sociologists in the past. And each audience as they're listening to the presentations of their peers is going to act as other theorists and dissenters of that opinion and challenging those weaknesses. We're able to talk about strengths and weaknesses, disagree about what is the right thing to do without getting our egos involved and, and recognizing that we're doing this for rigor, for collaboration and for competition. I mean, you're spot on with these activities. Well, and then again, you just kind of brought up that concept of urban. Um, mm-hmm, I know we're yes. going to jump into that a little bit more. Let's head on to that. When we say urban education, what are we thinking there? The field is still deciding upon what it means because so many people are writing and say different things. But usually urban is is a term that we're using to talk about race. And we use urban because we don't want to seem as if we're talking about race. And so the other way that urban is used is we use it to describe a spatial boundary with a population and determining the density of that population. And so when we're talking about urban, and at least in the field of sociology too, we're talking about how identities and diverse people are organized within a certain geographical boundary. And the more urban a space is, the more diverse it is. It begs the question, well, what is a a space that is not ethnically or racially diverse? What do you call it? Is it just a community? Is it just a neighborhood? Why is it that when we start to factor in diversity of ethnicities and identities that it becomes urban? That is what we're thinking about in urban and rural contexts. Are we talking about race or are we talking about geographical location? I am moving towards trying to discuss that deeper in the field of education. What do we really need? You know, Steve, you asked a question earlier, right? Of like, well, kind of where do we go? And you had that statement of like, well, we just need to be okay with being uncomfortable. Uh, Well, instead of saying culture and decolonizing, are we just kind of replacing words because it makes others feel less threatened? Right, right. And I think we have to get comfortable with, again, being uncomfortable and learning how does this person refer to themselves? How would they like to be referred to? And to stop allowing our learned experience because these become learned behaviors. So there's no reason to shame, blame, or guilt yourself about something that in one way or another, we have all learned, but we have just learned it from a diverse perspective. Get comfortable with getting with other people to unlearn those habits. There are things as a person that I've learned and unhealthy habits that I've taken on that I have to unlearn. It's an unlearning and an unflattening of our identities and making it the multidimensional, dynamic, moving thing that it is and that it, it, it is inside of all of us. I love the word dynamic. When I think of dynamic, I think of system that is in the throes of change. That's uncomfortable, but it is the only positive way we change. And that's why I love your message. 
we are not very comfortable with dynamic systems because we've shielded ourselves from them. But if COVID did one thing, it created a very dynamic system for all of us, and especially in education. I love the emphasis that you're placing on being comfortable with being uncomfortable. That's our reality right now, but it can be a really good thing. How do you project that to people that this is a good thing? I think by just allowing my natural light to shine, I'm doing the work, I'm doing the best I can, and I can only show up and be myself with the tools that I've gained and learned and continue to be open and willing to learn more. I think with our students, we have to take on the perspective that we're not just their teachers, we are students of them as well. And we have to allow them to teach us what they know and to, to respect and honor that they are cognitive social emotional beings and they experience things the only difference between us as them is that we have a better vocabulary to give a name to speak to these experiences Uh, i have so much compassion for them because to be choked up in a way i say on words and feelings and experiences that you can't get expressed but you feel so deeply i've been there as as a teen i'm able to speak on it now because i'm wanting to be deeply reflective as a woman a daughter a servant, a public servant, I'm wanting to be better for those, for others, so that they don't have to feel that violence of having to choke back words that they don't understand that are living inside of them. What came up for me is if we don't create that space for the teachers to find their own genuine self, who they are, how they got there, they're not going to be able to do the work that you're asking them to do. They're not going to be able to create, you know, an educational learning environment around these kids that's equitable, that celebrates the knowledge that they bring into the classroom because they don't know what they bring. Right. Exactly. Exactly. And that's why the first five, six weeks of our course, we're totally focusing on identity and teacher positionality. We're asking questions like, what identity are you most aware of at home? What identity are you most aware of at school? What identity do people notice about you first? Which one is most important to you? And we do this activity actually moving about the room and responding and around the room are these different identity markers. And so you're walking to them and you're seeing, oh, well, just because my peer, which I teach majority white female students, just because my peer is white and female doesn't mean that she is identifying with the same experience that I am. That is one of the key characteristics that we want them to focus on is themselves. I would guess then you want them to extend that to their students in the very same manner. Honor and respect of identity and self. Not to put you on the spot, but do you have any more tangible strategies that teachers can use in their classroom from a curricula perspective to begin having these conversations? Mm-hmm. I think something influential in our, in our, with our students that we do or is a language map, is thinking about all of these different places that we go, to the grocery store, to church, to the spa, to the DMV, to all these different places that we visit in our daily lives. Thinking about the language that you're having to speak there at school, at home. How do the languages that you speak there diverge from each other? Do you have to kind of code switch and change? And think about how you're unaware of that. But think about our students who are bilingual, who are coming into the classroom, who are 
needing more institutional and instructional supports to get them to that smooth code switching place. Think about how uncomfortable it might make them feel if, or make you feel if you, for the first time as a 16, 17 year old, had to go to the DMV by yourself and get your driver's license. The trepidation, the fear, the nervousness that you feel because you don't really know what to expect or how to communicate and advocate for yourself in that space. So we're teaching them to understand the feeling of what happens when you don't include that diversity of experience. How does it feel for you? I love it. Um, Which isn't always a great thing because you may not always feel things as deeply as you should. You know, it it all depends on the openness of heart and mind that you come in with. All right. Karanisa just triggered me badly with the DMV. (laughs) I just want to say it, you guys, you lost me at DMV. No, I'm just laughing because actually doing anything at the DMV seems to be hard, but no. I appreciate all the experiences you just had us relate to and the whole idea of code switching, which we all do or have to do or learn to do. That's really practical stuff. Some of us more than others. Uh, Yeah, exactly. There's so many more places I want to go, but we cannot be here until dinner time. So first off, congrats on on you're you're almost there. Doctor in the house. You are so close. Uh, we will. We need to stay in touch and celebrate when you do. I'm glad that our paths crossed. I'm glad that Talitha Coom and that advisory board has a resource like you. That's awesome. And I can't. I can't thank you enough for for coming on Education Suspended. This was awesome. This is a really, really good conversation, and I 100% appreciate your time and the work that you're doing. Thank you. I appreciate uh, that you guys are having these conversations and inviting those like myself to to talk more about this. Thanks.